Hello and welcome to the Virtual Clinical Podcast. I'm your host, Nicole Sunderland. This is a spot where nurses share their stories and their experiences to provide mentorship as well as help nurses and soon-to-be nurses just like yourself along the way. I hope you enjoy these episodes. Welcome to episode three of the Virtual Clinical Podcast. I am joined with my friend and colleague, Lori Merkel. Lori and I used to be co-workers at my current job now. Uh, she has a BA in psychology with a minor in biology from Rutgers. Then she pursued her BSN at Drexel. Then she obtained her master's of science in public health from Penn State University. And she has a certification in high-risk neonatal nursing and presently is a certified professional in healthcare quality. She just completed her PhD at Jefferson University in population health sciences with a concentration in healthcare quality and safety and focuses on implementation science, which is like my geek out mode because I've recently just learned all about implementation science and how amazing it is. She also served on a technical expert panel developing a patient reported outcome metric for CMS. That is cool too. You've done a lot of things, girlfriend. Oh, I'm just trying one of everything, you know. <laughs> just one day at a time. Looking for my adventures. Yeah, you have, you have, you among, I think any one of my guests have had so many adventures like in your life, including triathlon, even though it's not nursing related. <laughs> oh gosh. But no. including triathlon. So why did you just decide to start your, your journey with psychology? What was that motion of like, I think I'm just going to get my degree in psychology, which no one ever does, like suggested, no. it, right? It's like, well, what are you going to do with that? I don't know. Yes. Well, so full transparency, that's exactly what I did. So in my family, I'm the youngest of six kids. Uh, my parents were the firstborn generation here in America. So they were awesome. immigrant parents. So the fact that um, you know any of their kids got to a four-year school was an enormously big deal. So yeah, I was the first one in my family to get to. Oh my god, I got to university! Rah rah! This is awesome! Yay! Okay, great. You know, biology was cool, and I was originally entered with biology, thinking, okay, I'll turn this into something. I don't know what. And then I kind of was like, well, you know. Biology, organic chemistry starting to sink me. Maybe I'm going to just flip my minor and my major. And so <laughs> I ended up with psychology. And again, I guess just seeing the perspective that I was coming up from and um, you I was raised in, all I was excited about was, hey, I finished a four-year school. Oh my God, I'm the first person in my family to finish a four-year school. Go me. Yay, yeah, awesome. it's great. And then I graduated. And then I was like, wait a second. And I was like, this is really going to hit the ground hard because I see a lot of overlending and I'm pretty sure this is going to blow up in everyone's face. It did, but hey, that's okay. That's okay. why I decided, like, you know, let me, let me 
let me actually go to school and like with the end in mind for the first time and try try this one more time. But, so but you know, perhaps the end in mind was very hard to see when you were the first person to to go to a university like a four year university. You know, <laughs> it was impossible to see. So I mean, in, in a lot of I know that you as we all get older and we think about oh, I might have done this differently or that differently and it's easy to sort of fall back on like oh I wish I just or oh what was I thinking when but you know I just keep reminding myself like I only know the information that's in front of me and I'm a victim of my own context if I only know you know how how big my world is by what I can see then that's what I can see right mm, so that's a, that's a I, I try really point. I, I try to still keep a little rosy um, glasses on, uh, although I've made all kinds of wrong turns all over the place. But you know, you just they're adventures and they're learning, and it's not like I kind of had any predecessor to sort of help guide me. So I'm learning as I go, right? That's so true. <laughs> I feel like we're, we were we probably were in the same boat. I graduated my degree in philosophy as my first degree. My grandpa was like, well, "What are you going right. to do with that?" I was like, "I I don't know. I don't know." <laughs> I don't know, but like seems like a good idea at the time. I don't know. <laughs> oh, everyone and everyone was so excited, and I'm like, why didn't? And I, I can remember, clearly remember saying to like my brothers and sisters and my parents, I'm like, why didn't anyone ask me what I was gonna do with this? Like, what were you guys? They're like, we were just so proud you got in. I'm like, that's not really helpful. Thank you. <laughs> it's it might seem not like not that helpful. But there's also <laughs> the caveat of why should people be worried about what you're going to do with your degree after you graduate, right? Like, what does it matter? Because like you, you can you can now major in art and be an Instagram influencer, right? But you didn't know that back in the day. I'm just saying, like, right, right, right. Back when we were, oh my god, I literally was doing like the old plug, plug and say and sign in and the <laughs> sign into the modem at school. Like, are we talking old school here? But uh, yeah, yeah to, to your point, I mean, I feel that's one good thing about sort of the evolution of technology and just yeah, as a whole, as we're kind of growing, there are more and more opportunities. But I still feel largely like you need to kind of find your own way. I, mentors and coaches are great. And, you know, as much as you can find and connect with one, of course, that's going to help you so, so much. But even with them, you kind of have to find your own way among mm -hmm. all that. You know, it's there's so much information coming at you. So yeah, you kind of always have to almost have your own compass, and then kind of like allow yourself to be the quote unquote nail, <laughs> and let and let the hammers, you know, find their way and shape you. But ultimately, you still have to be that that toughest that quote unquote toughest nails, right? Yeah. You have to be tough and knowing what your uh, your whole direction might be. Yeah. Yeah. I, I feel like you also, and again, everyone's starting from somewhere different, right? So that's that whole goes back to the whole kind of, honestly, to equity and, and how we talk about even like social justice and equity versus equality and where are you starting from and how, you know, everywhere, everyone's starting from somewhere different. So I, I mean, I try very much to use that in my approach in every random adventure I find myself on is figuring and you certainly know as you know a bedside clinician you need to meet patients where they are but i feel like it's sort of it's the same with us too as we sort of find our way like be patient with yourself it's okay to be a wanderer <laughs> you know yeah, it is. 
you you may not have started where everyone else started. You know, I didn't have someone saying, hey, you know, you could go to med school. Hey, what's that? Okay. You know, you're just, you start wherever you start and you just try to impart the wisdom into the next generation. So I try to like help out my niece with what I've learned or not. And hopefully it helps. Maybe it doesn't, but maybe she'll avoid one or two of the potholes. Yeah. Know. You never know. <laughs> I mean, I, I had someone reach out to me the other day about if, if they should do nursing school versus med school and wholeheartedly I was like nursing school duh yeah <laughs> not just because I'm a nurse but you know like I just felt like you know you have to really consider what you want to be or yeah. who you are I should say and yeah. most of the time I find people perhaps might be much happier as nurses I could be wrong though but you know I love what I do and I've not had any any doubts so that was my whole driving point was that I still love what I do 10 years later 11 hold on Oh, 12 years later, I graduated. <laughs> I don't even know. Um, a lot of years ago, and I still enjoy what I do. And I'm still learning things every day. So I think that was really the, the whole driver point of what I was, you know, conveying to her, which which I hope hope she got. I don't know, though. Yeah. 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 It's a lot of self-reflection. And uh, yeah, as I finish one degree and now move on to the next chapter, I'm, I've been doing a lot more reflecting. So you're, you're never, I, I don't know. I feel like if you ever are arrive at where you think you're going, then, mm. you know, you risk stagnating, I guess, to some degree. So yeah. I, I think I always kind of live with that fear of, well, I don't want to just be stagnant. I still want to keep learning things. So right. what, I don't know. Right. Maybe, it, maybe I'm just a wacko. <laughs> if you've reached the pinnacle, what else is there to reach? Right. Yeah. You always want to be striving for something. I don't exactly. know. Exactly. I'm on the same boat as you. <laughs> so, so then you went to nursing school, Drexel. Yes. And what just your end goal was in mind at this point, but what drove you into nursing? Was it babies? Because then you went to babies, little tiny oh, I, babies. I, I knew from nursing school it was going to be babies. I, I that I knew. I I knew that instant I walked into that rotation. <laughs> that that was I was like, yep. I think that was the most clear-sighted I ever was about having an end in mind was when I walked into that rotation. I was like, this will be it. This, this is, this is the one. <laughs> but, um, I think what drove me there in I, I think it was all really subconscious. I don't think I totally put it together until mm -hmm. a while after, but, um, my, uh, brother, my, I told you it was the sixth. So my, the fifth, in the family, my uh, closest in age brother was um, actually in a really bad uh, accident in the early 90s and had a spinal cord injury. Wow. So he he actually, maybe that was the subconscious role why I met Jefferson, but he was at uh, Jefferson for like six months and rehab in McGee for like three. So, I mean, there was a, it was a really impressionable time for me because I was like a junior, senior in high school. And so it was you know, sort of a, a bit of a traumatic thing for my family. And then um, I think that was probably the subconscious feed, like, hey, there were some really cool things that I saw that, you know, could impact and change, um, you know, help people, right? Yeah. I guess I shouldn't say who doesn't want to help people, but as a nurse, I can say, well, we didn't get into this because we didn't want to help people, right? That's true. <laughs> um, but I, and, yeah. I think that was the thinking there. But that's a, such a good point. You know, not everybody perhaps knows what what pathway they want to help people. But I think everybody wants to help people, right? <laughs> right. You want to help your neighbor neighbors with it with a 
snow snow um plow or shovel that's helping right <laughs> it's it might not be wiping somebody's butt you know for poop like what i do all the time i help people that way right yeah <laughs> but i think everybody's methods of helping people are different and there's nothing wrong with that so did you attend a secondary program or did you attend another four-year degree program at no it was the accelerated career entry the ace Program. Ah, so, so like way was, before second degree programs were titled. Yeah, they, they, I was, uh, let's see, I went, I actually went in 2005. They only had a few classes, graduating classes before that. So it's relatively early in that idea of, hey, we can take people that got psychology degrees and art history degrees and philosophy degrees and we can kind of do it like a nursing boot camp yeah and get them sort of up to speed as a second career that's um, cool nurse. so it was sort of early in that thinking uh, you know i'm grateful for that it worked perfectly for me it was 11 months it was pure screaming hell mm. but mm-hmm. it was really nursing boot camp i mean eat sleep breathe five days a week you know it was it yeah. was intense but um, I, I, yeah, I, I mean, I have, I, people have asked me, you know, would you do it again or would you recommend it for me? So I always sort of try to feel them out. Like it is not for everyone for sure. So right. I, I, I kind of preface, there are some people who after kind of feeling them out, I'm like, I don't think this is for you. And, and I'll be honest. I mean, it's really all in. It's right. It is. Well, the wall it is all in. <laughs> you live under a rock for that period of time, and that's all you do for either. Literally. Like my, my program, my secondary program was eighteen months. Yeah, and I think that I lived under a rock. I was, I was, you know, a pale kid leaving <laughs> school. I was so nice and tan coming into school, and then I left school, and I was this pale uh, kid. It was yeah, great. Right. Yeah, that's great. No, that's what I'll say. I'll be like, you know what? There's 14 month programs. There's 18 month. There's 24. Maybe pick something that's a little more conducive. But then there are people that I know are just like, hey man, I'm ready. You know, I'm, I'm ready to make sacrifice. I just want to go and get started. And I'm like, dude, go for it. So it is very, very person specific on yeah. on yeah. these boot camp programs. But it were it was great for me. It worked for me. I didn't have kiddos. You know, it just. My husband and a couple dogs, and they were pretty cool. So that worked for me. And then that was, yeah, that was great. That's and, awesome. So did you start right away in neonatal care then, right after graduation? Yeah. See, that's that's the tricky part. Is uh, um, I did not. I did do one year of general peds actually at another facility, and mm. through that experience. And sending plenty of children to Hershey. Um, that's how I was like, hey, wait a second. Tell me more about this place. And, um, you know, a friend of a friend left from the unit, left to go there. So I got to, um, she still works there now. I don't know if I should say her name on a, a podcast, but we'll still like say, hey, how you doing? And thanks every once in a while. So that's cool. Um, but anyway, so I got um, introduced that way. And I was like, heck yeah. And so I was only there for one year. I knew that uh, my end goal still was going to be neonatal. And I thought that uh, based on early conversations, that's where I would be where I started, but uh, it quickly was proving to not be that type of environment Mm -hmm. where uh, the evolution and progress was particularly warm and welcoming. So that also fed my decision to like, you know, I think I'm going to be able to maximize my potential if I move, make a move. And I did. And I, it was awesome. 
I still tell people that was the most fun job I've ever had. And I don't mean fun, like, hey, man, party, rock and roll. You know what I mean by fun. It is. Yes. It is, hard. It is work. It is, it is work. Tears and sputum and all the things. But I loved it. Uh, yeah. I always tell people, I'm like, there is nothing like being a bedside nurse. No matter how tiny or how big your, your patients are, because there is an adventure in every single day that you show up. And it is it, it is a ton of fun. Um, it is a lot of work. But oh, and it's camaraderie, yeah. though. I mean, it's oh, amazing yeah. the friendships and relationships that I mean, that I think has just been one of the best, most lasting parts. Yeah. Until you've like, kind of gone through it with someone else and just so grateful for those folks and for. Yeah, if, yeah. if I really think about it, I've lived an entire lifetime on my unit. I have seen so much. I've seen, you know, births, deaths, life happen, chaos happen, moments happen, you know, things like that, that I think is just really amazing to, to think about on this unit that you're on. Right, exactly. So then you worked your way into quality. And yeah. what kind of like, made you bridge into that realm of quality and you also got your master's of science in public health so these two yeah. things these two things are 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 a lot more related than people i think realize of quality and healthcare and public health because a lot of the data and the metrics that you look at um have to do with public health stuff and how do we convince people to change their ways and a lot of lessons i think are from public health that really translate into quality care if I, if I hit yeah. that on the, on the head, I think. Yeah, no, you pretty much hit that right on. So early, yeah, so I always had a little bit of a flair for liking research, but again, didn't necessarily kind of have the like broad scope and vision of how this fits in to, you know, operations and, and like careers and, you know, kind of, I just knew what I really liked it. And honestly, one of the big driving, besides just the patient population, but one of the big things that I loved about um, being in NICU was you were always sort of at the edge of the bubble. You know, you're, the medicine, the technology was always changing. It was always new. It was always advancing. There was so much opportunity for like kind of coming up with creative solutions. You know, I, I was just really kind of into that zone. And so I tended to like research and participate in a couple like unit projects here and there. And I didn't really have, again, like, what's, what do you call this? What is this? I want to study more of this. And then actually a, a colleague on the unit said, you know what you might like? And so then she was talking to me about, well, health services research kind of incorporates that. And patient outcomes was really a big deal to me, again, tying back to sort of the, uh, the, the tentacles into quality and research and patient outcomes and that sort of thing was all kind of bubbling up. So I, I liked public health. What that taught me above all else really was largely what you're saying is that you, you, know, you can't really separate, I feel, quality of care and, and patient outcomes like from kind of data. So epidemiology was a huge Pandora's box for me as I unfurled that bow and opened that lid and was like, oh, I get it now. Great. Yeah, I, I totally get it. This is what's going to drive not only improvement in my practice, 
not only improvement in my unit, so now impacting not one patient or two patients I might have on a shift or three or four, you know, in the lower acuity that night, uh, but this could really drive the outcomes and improve care for the whole hospital. I mean, if you think about the principles and how studying, how metrics are derived from occurrences and conditions and how we have care pathways and things like that that can really help evidence-based show these improvements. And now thinking about, we apply it on a wider scale, you know, the bridge from, I think, bedside nursing to sort of moving into quality made a lot of sense to me because, you know, instead of maybe taking care of two patients, maybe I can help impact even more patients on a larger yeah. scale by um, helping everyone understand what, uh, you know, what a collapse rate was or understand that, hey, you know, this weird phenomenon you're seeing, let's measure it and let's figure out why we're seeing it and how we can make it better. So that whole sort of concept really, um, really grabbed me. And uh, <laughs> I, I would say that was kind of an easy morph in a way, I think for me, kind of thinking like, again, at the edge of the bubble and how can we keep making improvements? And we always need to be making improvements because that's apparently just who I am is we can always be better tomorrow. Like, we can always be better. On that. So right. We can that's, always be better tomorrow. So let's get to work on it. That's right. I think like one of, I, I met you as, as that quality person. I didn't meet you as a, as a neonatal nurse, but I met you as a quality person. And the way that you discussed quality impacted the way that I teach quality to my students. Whoa, no way. Like nurses at the baccalaureate level, at the associates level, I don't teach associates or diplomas, but I feel like at those levels, you need to care about quality metrics because hospitals care about quality metrics because outcomes matter. You can do something about it and you can be a person that solves a problem as opposed to complaining about things. That's the biggest driver is that you can look at things you can implement little changes that might impact this one particular problem, but it's going to impact, oh, in the long run, perhaps thousands of people. Right. Like, and how cool is that? It's how so cool. cool. It is I the most empowering thing about being a nurse, I think, is that. And I think that's the most, I remember, oh my, oh, my days in quality were so fun because I feel like that was something that I got to do on uh, such a big scale to really help folks kind of understand that number. There's there's people behind the numbers. They're not just percentages and decimals and rates and all that. They, there's there's people here. So mm-hmm. if we take um, you know your your pressures rate from twenty percent of your population to ten percent of population. You know we're talking depending on your census, of course. You know we're talking hundred patients. We're talking how, you know, how, how, think about how many people that's impacting and now improving their quality of life, decreasing the length of time they have to stay in the hospital. I mean, it's just huge. It's amazing. It, it also, you know, it's caring for the patient in a hands-off way because there is two different ways of patient care, verbally and non-verbally. If you think mm-hmm. of that, like overlying, um, <clears throat> tone here, I, I guess, is, is maybe the, the right word. It's not the correct verbiage, but here we are. Um, in that you care for patients at the bedside, and that is technically like your verbal communication, right? Mm-hmm. By your nonverbal com- communication being quality metrics, you're looking at things that you can't really control in the moment, 
but it's a different way of caring for the patient that are that's hands off. And so that's the other biggest driver is that there's actually two ways of caring for patients, verbally, non-verbally, hands-on, hands-off, that new nurses need to pay attention to. And I get yeah. so excited about it. And if and honestly, like quality now has shifted in such a way that you know you can talk about things without blaming somebody and help to fix the general population of things and help to make it more positive rather than blameful, which I think is so important when you teach new nurses how to how to do quality care. Yeah, and organizational culture plays such a huge role in that, uh, embracing the idea of system issues as a root cause versus people issues. Yeah. I mean, as a and generally as designing new workflows and building new initiatives, you know, whenever you can engineer out failure, engineering it out of the process, I mean by that, then how much stronger an end game that sets you up mm -hmm. for. Because because people are human. No one's going to work, quote, and to add, quote, Sherry Taylor, who you you know and love, you know, showing up to work to, to hurt right. someone, especially right. a nurse. Right. <laughs> you know, the, the odds are firmly stacked against that. So what can we do to help them be successful, help us be successful as a profession to drive quality to the extent where the entire hospital is impacted. Um, look at the leapfrog ratings. And, and, and I feel like increasingly, as we're seeing more and more emphasis on these hospital ratings and these large initiatives, you know, leapfrog, there's US News More Report, of course there's Magnet. We're seeing such greater emphasis on um, and, and importance for organizations to achieve these milestone markers and they rest so heavily on nursing care. Mm -hmm. I don't know that um, globally that was really kind of the, the culture or view. I think until you start to really see that snowball effect of all those improvements, all those little tiny micro improvements rolled snowballed up to the big improvements that we see yeah. and drive yeah. these achievement attainments, you know, that's, that's great. Yeah, that's great. I just such a, such a bigger limelight than I feel like it was when, when, when I started. Yes. Oh, yes. I mean, it was kind of like this, this thought when you first started, I think. And now it's become such an ingrained process in our in organizational culture. Mm -hmm. like, not even just in one organization, I'm talking about the, the entire verbiage around how to handle quality of care has changed so drastically cool. in the last wow. several years. Um, that it's so important to just talk about this in everyday discussions, you know? Yeah, I love it. It's good stuff. It's great. And then you moved. And I left to, you. I to know. Correct? Went After to that. Jefferson. Yep, I went to, so I, I <laughs> it, this isn't a goal, but it kind of this feel like it, it feels like it's starting to be a goal. I'm trying to just get to every Jefferson I can. <laughs> every division I possibly can. In Jeff no, no, I'm teasing. It's, it does feel like that, though. Um, so I started in Center City um, and also in a quality role, really supporting magnet efforts, but I had a lot of involvement in hospital-wide committees for some quality improvement efforts. Um, and the cool thing about that move was the scale. Now, Hirsch is not a small place at all. <laughs> I'm not even pretending it is, but the scale there really, really struck me as Okay, now instead of, you know, one hospital that I'm kind of trying to help keep organized and on track, there's 
technically three. <laughs> okay, yes. great. Got it. Okay, cool. And instead of, you know, 500 patients, there's, I don't know, 1,000, 1,500. You know, so the scale really upped, um, so the ante upped, but it was really cool. And it was a really neat exposure to see different kinds of interactions where um, hospitals were integrated. So at the time, there was uh, Methodist, I mean, there still is Methodist, but it was just, it was before all the acquisitions. That's what I'm setting up for. <laughs> but at that time, it was, it was just Jefferson. So it was large, it was plenty large as it was and had a very big presence, obviously, in um, Center City. But there was Methodist in South Philly, and it was sort of your more like community type hospital, small. It was a totally different atmosphere, you know, and they were also kind of in the zone of what we were doing. And then there was like the, the academic med center, and then there was the specialty neuroscience hospital. So it was, it was really cool because it was a really just different flavors of different types of organizations, but all still under the same umbrella. Right. So you moved so that from be- like a one hospital thing to a, to a system role basically. Yes. And I'm kind of, kind of giggling on the inside because now when I say system, it's like 14 hospitals. It's a completely different, completely different scale, but we'll get to that. We'll get to that part of the journey later. Um, But at the time, yes, it was, it was a bit more of a system, Um, but it was, it was specifically just Jefferson when it was just Jefferson. Then they sort of made some acquisitions and did a lot of integration and whatnot. That's really neat. And I, you mentioned something really, really briefly, which is magnet. And I tend to teach my students that working for a magnet organization matters because of the amount of care that an organization puts towards quality care, quality metrics, safe environments, outcomes, the whole nine yards. You as a nurse get to participate in this, in like a shared governance structure. It's really a big deal to work for a magnet organization that is yeah. that is just beyond name alone it really is and you get more exposure to things that you might not otherwise get right so that, that's going to be sort of an interesting part of my story when we get there but I, I can you know there's exposures to things that when you were in that environment you come to say well this is how it works in the real world because this is the real world that I know and see and I expect my leadership to be transformational and I expect research to and innovation to be valued and I expect we're going to, you know, so it's, it, it does set expectations. It's not, a, it's not a bad thing at all. It's a bad thing. It's only going to help you going forward. If you do happen to be, find yourself not in that environment, it is a wonderful thing to have on your compass because you know where true North is and you know, reality. <laughs> so yeah. it helps you if you're not in those environments or situations as you move onward and upward and whatever your adventure takes you, then you can plot your course and you can bring that experience with you. And then you are now kind of the role model and the, the person kind of driving to those uh, tenants. Yes. Yeah. So it, it is cool. It is really cool. And especially as a, a new nurse or a new employee in an organization, like that's so, so impactful it to is. be able to have that experience. And also when you get your magnet pin, it's a really cool thing. <laughs> it's, the, it's the little things in life when you're a nurse and, and a pin. We a love pin. We love our pins. <laughs> Such a cool experience though, when you get like a magnet pin 
even if you're brand new and you have no clue what you just walked into, you know, it, it gives you something of meaning and value that you look back and you're like, oh, that did mean something. Oh, I can work for something. I can, I know my expectations based on receiving this pin, which sounds kind of weird, but it's, it's certainly, it's, it's the visual reminder, you know, it's just the like, yeah, this really did happen. You know, it, you know, even though that's not the environment that I see here or there or whatever, like, okay, this was a token that reminded me like, yeah, yeah, I live there. I did that. That's, you know, that's still a part of me. That's awesome. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. So then where did you move to? Ha! In, okay. In so, the system. Yeah. So then I decided, well, yeah, no. So uh, Jefferson acquired um, several hospitals in sequence all over the place. Um, but the short story is uh, then actually, um, what really drove me at that point was I started to learn about population health. Okay. And um, Jefferson being the first university in the nation, I hope I'm not misstating this. I'm saying this from memory, from what I believe I was told. You can fact check me, guys. <laughs> tweet, you can angry tweet Nicole if I'm wrong. Um, but the first population health school uh, formed there at Jefferson Thomas Jefferson University. So awesome. I was really intrigued by this concept and also really intrigued by the uh, like President CMO and some of his podcasts and listening to but really now thinking about I'm gonna oversimplify this, but thinking about quality care and patient outcomes and driving improvement on a continual basis basis, not at you know the the, the patient, your assignment level, not at your unit level, not at a hospital level, not at a multi-hospital level, but thinking about changing the actual care delivery model in the country, I mean, or, or in the region, or thinking about, hey, we fundamentally need to make improvements on how we are delivering healthcare to patients and kind of think about that in a really uh, much larger picture. Uh, we, so I guess, just to sort of backtrack a little bit mm -hmm. and just for information. So population health sciences, population health umbrella, if you will, is, is really kind of taking that big picture approach and saying, okay, we as a country have, oh, we're spending, you know, what, 13 plus percent of our gross domestic product on healthcare. Mm -hmm. We are not achieving the top um, performance rates in healthcare. We have the third highest, like, maternal morbidity. Uh, I mean, horrible, horrible outcomes that we are paying a ton on. We're yes. seeing folks go bankrupt because they can't pay for their medical bills. I mean, there's just some fundamental systematic problems with our current model. So, what struck me about Pop Health is it was sort of a culmination of all these random, seemingly random feeling things to me about my background kind of pulled together under one umbrella. So how can, so how can we leverage technology to drive improvement? So when I started off in IT, how can we leverage like the, 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 the patient component, behavioral health models, um, yeah. cognitive, you know, theories of health and improvement and just some of the psych pieces, lots of the bedside care and where are we meeting people where they are? What's their access like? You know, thinking about um, 
all of these different issues. And then of course, of course, a huge quality component and we need to, and a huge metric component. Um, so I, I really was, I was really all into this because I'm like, oh man, this sounds like it's bringing like all my worlds together. This is so cool. Oh my God, this is the next thing. I got to do it. <laughs> so I started my PhD in um, pop health, much to my husband's chagrin. Uh, luckily, he did not divorce me then <laughs> yet. <laughs> you know, if you, if you can make it through a PhD and still stayed married and still stayed sane, you've pretty much made it through life. You get a <laughs> so that's why he's all caught up on all the shows to binge on. And I'm like, what's that show? I never heard of it. <laughs> I haven't watched TV in five years. <laughs> wow. Um, but but you know, and, and at any rate, um, so at the, so I had started becoming interested in pop health and the school of pop health there at the university. And so my next uh, job move, my next career move, actually, I, I felt that I really needed to live it. Uh, pop health largely is looking at a wellness model in the, in the, in the U S our healthcare system is largely an illness culture or sickness culture. Mm -hmm. uh, wellness is, is not a prominent part, but we know that wellness care is much cheaper and the long run and well, it's cheaper to pr provide in, in the short term. And it's also obviously long-term uh, savings and quality of life improvements farther down. Um, and then the other thing, and I, I sort of didn't mention this earlier was uh, our current care delivery model in the U.S. still, even though we say we're trying to get away from this, but it's still largely fee for service. Yes. So that's a really important point I wanted to mention was as many times as I come to you, my PCP and see you, I'm going to drop a bill, drop a bill, drop a bill. And so you are incentivized to do as many things as you can to someone, mm -hmm. which is is not necessarily a value proposition. Right. So population health tries to say, okay, well, let's, this is a value play. We're going to try to change our model from a fee-for-service model to a value-based care it's model. one of the most important economic trends Ooh. I've learned about. And I love it so much because you could produce value for someone's life when you take care of it. It just... It's like, to me, I was kind of like, yeah, no, duh. <laughs> but think that, that's, it. that's exactly what's my reaction to. I'm like, oh, this is so where I need to go because duh, yeah. of course. <laughs> of course you need to do this because it makes sense because we exactly. actually are proving value to our consumers. Same yeah. things with quality care. You, per, you are proving the value of a nurse at the bedside. It's just like a moment. Hopefully, going back to our brief discussion on quality and bedside stuff, my hope is that we then figure out value and then figure out how we can pay nurses more. At the uh -huh, yes. A yes, different so financial model altogether, because I feel like that's going to be so important moving forward. Perhaps not for every you know, hospital service, but it's going to be so important for nurses to truly get paid for what they actually do instead of just like a, I'm here, I do my work for 12 hours. One person might work harder than I am, but I still get paid the same amount. Yeah, you know? I... Yeah, so there. That's interesting because, from a nurse perspective, the value proposition looks very different in yep. an ambulatory setting versus inpatient. So yep. that's sort. Of, that's sort of exactly where very, I'm going. Very, very good. 
very good point Every, to drive. Everything that I'm learning as I'm starting my pop health education is really looking at this, you know, a con some concepts that are like aging in place and how are we, you know, acute care. So inpatient care is the most, I don't know, I'm the most expensive versus ED, uh, whatever. At any rate, emergency department visits right. and in, inpatient. So I'm, I'm, I'm kind of uh, wait, um, fluctuating there because I'm like thinking well, like ICU versus. But at any rate, any type of inpatient encounter and any type of emergency department utilization encounter is the highest cost. Yes. To procure. I, I want to say that like so, and the it's probably the same for what you're talking about because, and, and different in, in, in the same regards, because if you go to the ED and rely on the ED services as a doctor's office, it is the most expensive level of care. That's why Absolutely. you don't necessarily go to the ED anymore for like five bucks. Like my, like when I had my parents' insurance back in the day, I remember you, you go to the ED and it was only like a $10 surcharge. So yeah. it was easy to just go there and be like, Oh, my hand hurts. Right. So, so they want to incentivize well, me now by having co-insurances and being like, well, do you really need yeah, to go? Like you don't want to do that. You really if, don't want to. Right. The other reason that you don't want to, and again, back to the, the, the quality play, you don't want to because maybe you're going to get impatient and get exposed to MRSA or you're going to get a, a worse outcome because you're now cr creating more, uh, a, a less favorable environment for yeah. yourself. Yes. Or and any other the other thing is like look at our patient population in the U.S. We're increasing, increasingly having high rates of obesity, high rates of diabetes, high rates of these chronic comorbid conditions. Mm -hmm. So these are not are not best main, managed in an ED setting, right? No. An ED is trying to get you there, make sure you're stable, alive, and then moved along. This is not how you're going to treat someone with diabetes who maybe they have to keep going to the ED because they can't afford their insulin. Right. So that's a completely different problem that needs to be taken right. outside of an inpatient acute setting, outside of an ED and handled in primary care. And yes. so that is sort of a large emphasis in population health is kind of looking to primary care to have more wraparound services, have more team-based things. So that also was very appealing to me. And, and at that moment, I realized, well, gee, I've been a nurse for 10 years and I've never, I don't know anything about ambulatory care, but right. this is where the national healthcare model is going to have to be shifted towards to beef up, to better handle and manage the chronic population that we have, I probably better learn what that's like. So that's where I made sort of a huge leap of faith and uh, said, well, let's go check out this ambulatory care and let's live in the pop health world for a little bit. And, and that was my, that was my next move. So I went to actually the Abington campus in the physician network, and it was a completely different animal than anything I experienced inpatient. It was like turning my world on its head. It was so different. It was so different. And a lot of it is just, uh, they're just at a different point in the evolution, right? If you think about, and I, I would coach my uh, friends who were a little stressed about this, uh, there was a lot of change coming down very quickly in primary yes. care. Mm -hmm. um, 
but I, I liken it to, you know, when Joint Commission was making new measures in any of the areas that it started to make new measures, you know, when OB became under the radar, when hospitals first came under the radar, it was very similar. They were off the radar. Now you're on the radar. You're going to have measures. You're going to start to have your practice scrutinized. It's okay. It's growing pains. We're going to make improvements and strides, but it was like kind of going through that all over again now with, but with primary care. So it was cool. And I was grateful to have had the experience of inpatient to have done some of that and to live through some of those growing pains where, you know, we never were looking at the door to balloon or in some of those types of things. And now we have to, and, and then now to kind of almost relive that all over again in ambulatory care and like, okay, guys, this is, Different, but I promise it's 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 good, and so it's kind of good. it's also, gonna get better. I promise. It's gonna be I pro exactly, and I promise you this that we're doing right here is gonna be publicly reported. So just roll with me on this, and let's just. So it was it was really kind of a neat experience, but also a little like, oh my god, what's the wow? This is crazy. So, I really so, see the need. Yeah. So did this all change once the Affordable Care Act was implemented? Yeah, so the Affordable Care Act was a huge stimulator to bring about a lot of care model, uh, care delivery changes. Right. Uh, in fact, there's a provision in the Affordable Care Act that created a special department of CMS. I'll just spare you all the acronyms and detail, but a very special little area of uh, CMS that was funded specifically to pilot new care delivery models. That's cool. And so they call those demonstration projects and um, they're primary care, patient-centered medical homes. You guys may have heard, I know we did those at Hershey when I was there, uh, PCMH. That's probably one of the oldest ones that we've ever done as a nation. Um, and so what, has, what happens is they will start a, a demonstration project. They will learn about it. What could have made it better? Where did we need to improve? And then they'll, birth another one. So PCMH has been out for a very long time. I don't want to say that that necessarily was part of this, but we did have a lot of lessons learned from PCMH. We learned that, yes, we can provide comprehensive care. We can add nurses to primary care to provide some of this continuity mm -hmm. uh, to help bridge that gap, that transition from it, you know, ED discharge or inpatient discharge. So it was starting along those lines. Actually, PCMH started originally way back. Its roots were actually a pediatric model. And then it, it morphed over. Why, why am I not surprised? Because everything literally starts in peds. Which is where Lori started. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. But no, it, it does. And and that's it's actually funny because we're coming full circle on that too. Yeah. But, uh, but um, the, yeah, so PCMH was great, but it didn't help fund anything like the incentive what the payment model that there was structured wasn't really enough to get it off the ground to be like a widespread sustainable thing now having said that there are a number of countries other countries canada is one that implemented pcmh and it's freaking great they love it it's working well life is great it's going great you know just different different places different outcomes so it's actually uh, one of the things that started me in uh, my dissertation studies is like hey well how can we can implement the same thing in different places and have different outcomes that seems a little weird and thinking back to inpatient days hmm 
how come when we tried to take a best practice from one unit to another, sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't work as well? Why is yeah. that? So it sort of got me thinking about that, which it was building towards uh, a dissertation. So we'll come back to that. Uh, but at any rate, so the idea of changing the care delivery model uh, keeps having different iterations and evolutions. PCMH led to another one called comprehensive primary care. There were some lesson learns from there. And then Comprehensive Primary Care Plus was the new one when I came on the scene. In fact, that gave the practices like seed money, if you will, to literally go get the infrastructure. We expect you to have these things. Here's some money. Go get those things. Put them in place. I wish that was as easy for my life. Here's some money. Uh, well, yeah, it only took the Affordable Care Act and then another like 10 years and then yeah, I was just kidding but I mean it was it was substantial and so that's actually literally how I got my job I was the CPC plus person and CPC plus was hinged around quality we had to do quality metrics so I had to get them all set up for the quality metrics so it was like right up my alley like yeah, we're gonna do this it's gonna be great and they all hated it and the primary care providers were like this is garbage and I'm like no hang with me. No, please. it's great. Just trust me on this one, guys. It's great. Trust me on this one. It's a different audience talking to the PCPs, but they, they're a good, they're a good bunch. They're, you just have to win them over differently than you went over nurses. <laughs> they're you good. Know. They're good. It was cool though. So it was a lot of really cool new skills and seeing a new environment and seeing the real intricate um, operational aspect. So that role had a, I had a lot of really exposure to operations in ambulatory care which was very, very cool and different. Yeah. So um, I liked that. Uh, CPC Plus is coming to an end. Of course, we're on to the next model in some practices, but they don't need to know about that. Uh, but CPC Plus is winding down. Um, Jefferson's further integrating. So that's actually my my, my last move, which I, I, I guess I would say is involuntary. It sounds terrible, but <laughs> on my all the little the analysts at the and satellite campuses that have rolled up so now i'm at corporate services so i'm in this like um, brain trust of nerds that uh, are doing um analytics and there's some actuaries in the group and i don't know what they do and it's really different and um <laughs> sounds like they do numbers a heck of a lot of numbers i know i was like I, I was like you guys talk in dollar signs and i talk in people so we like to tease each other all the time about that but um, it, it is kind of neat. Uh, it's definitely a different perspective. So we're directly serving population health still, which is wonderful. Um, a lot of the programs that we initiated with, uh, as a result of CPC Plus and to help our pop health um, endeavors, I, I'm doing a lot of like the ROI and the evaluation of those programs. That's cool. So that's super cool. I also really am liking that. So. We have nurse care coordinators, we have behavioral health uh, consultants, and we have clinical ambulatory pharmacies. We actually have pharmacists dedicated specifically to primary care to help with, hey, I can get you your insulin for $4, you know, and, and some of those things. So it, together, it's a really powerful structure. And that is where my dissertation led to as well. Like, let me check the effectiveness of this new superpower team we put together and let's see if they're making a difference. Let's see if they're decreasing patients' utilization. You know, now that we've got the trifecta of 
the Avengers out here helping our patients? Do we have less utilization? Do we have less ED visits? Like what's going on? Let's check it out. So yeah. that was my um, dissertation. That's really cool. Yeah. And that sounds like a lot of work to do as well. Like, like <laughs> when you explained to me what you were doing in dissertation, I was kind of like, this sounds so big. And I don't know how you are doing this such a short amount of time to get your PhD. And five years is not a short period of time by any stretch of the imagination. But what you did in five years as your project, I was kind of like, you are nuts. But <laughs> that's the Lori I know who can do those things because it just brings the boom. You know, it just kind of like expands your mind so much in different ways. And that's kind of one of the things that, that as I went through different programs, so I went through health system science, which is where my like love of population health and those sorts of things really started that kind of like opened my mind so much more about patient care, even from an inpatient nurse perspective, you still need those things. And so when I start to work on my DMP project, which I don't even know what it's going to be yet, it's going to be something that has to do with the stroke app that I'm developing. But once I, once I created my heat map that I did, that opened my world up so much more to how do we serve the population that we do at the place where they come from? And to me, that was like the most mind boggling thing in the world, because, you know, for instance, there's certain areas that we've seen now that have a higher risk of stroke and we don't know why we can say why, but these areas actually don't make sense to, to perhaps like a poor living condition or sense to, I live in, in an inner city versus a rural area because we have both of those. And the, and the map is just like that much more expansive that it's just, you know, there's so much questions that I have. I don't know. It's going to be hard to figure out one question to figure out for this project. So here we are. Right. But. That, is, that is a good one. And social determinants of health play a huge role as well, as you alluded to with pop health. Um, not everyone is starting from the same spot. You know, hot spotting helps us maybe to narrow down the focus, but then we need to use some of the other tools in our toolbox. And, and that's also what I found to be so cool um, in kind of merging all of these things together is uh, really the size of your toolbox as you have all these tools from healthcare quality and safety and fish bones and like all of these really great tools to help you kind of hone in on the problem Implementation science also produces a whole new tray in your toolbox, if you will. And so that to me was really the crossover with um, kind of coupling the question of why do we implement things in one place and they're successful and another place and they're not uh, crossed with how effective is what we're doing and then crossed with, well, quality is the way, the light in the future. So that's kind of the umbrella that implementation science sort of helped uh, bridge together for me and build. And so getting to learn more about that and study that has really been enlightening. I really also like it's, I've gotten a whole new appreciation for the pragmatic. I think that a lot of my life prior to being in the amatory setting has been maybe a little flavored in academia, right? Mm-hmm. in an academic med center. Um, so I've gotten a whole new, whole new appreciation and perspective for what's the reality of what we can put in place and let's get this down to the, what's needed now. <laughs> no fluff, 
no, you know, the theories are great and I can use the theories and I can maneuver, maneuver the theories and manipulate them how I need to, but what's the end product that's got to go to the practices? What has to make it to the, to the sharp end, if you will, to where the patient is? So, and so it's, it's really been a great exercise in kind of trying to understand that. And that's also where I feel a lot of sort of the magnet skills that we talked about help. Oh, full circle. Yeah. Uh, I I absolutely feel full circle in like, okay, so we could get this in place if we've got the leadership buying. So let's talk to them about that. Let's get them with the endpoint in mind. Let's get them with their ROI in mind. If we're asking for this, here's what you're going to get at the end and and sort of really being able to line that up to get the stakeholder buy-in. So it's, it, it, it's been... a whole other topic of what I have to discuss with my students <laughs> in terms of, so I, I do a lot of like basic, basic finance with them because they're going to be paying off student loans. I have full disclosure to them that I am not a financial expert. However, mm-hmm. these things are going to happen to them. Yeah. Um, but what I don't discuss with them and what I think you just hit on, which is a great point, is the need for discussing the return on investment of ideas of, hey, this is an issue. Um, hey, I got to fix stuff. Yeah. You know, this is how you do it. You need to mention the return on investment yes. or some sort of bottom line because executives love money. Well, and it's, it's not like, it's not like, you know, it's a, a greedy thing, but it's, it's kind of like, how is this going to affect what I'm doing now? And how does this affect reimbursements? How does this affect all this other stuff? Right. I'm, I'm going to only, I'm only, I'm, I'm going to be a little bit of a jerk and only... <laughs> And only change your words a tiny bit. Do it. I love it. Executives need to keep the lights on. I'm going to say. Yes. No, that's exactly <laughs> and, correct. And, that, and it sounds far more desperate than you might and dramatic than one might think. But again, kind of seeing operations more closely and seeing how razor thin the budgets yes. are. And I, I yes. really hope. God, if anything good could come out of a pandemic, that we have a bigger spotlight on some of these operational problems. Yes. yes. We are all operating at razor thin margins. And and I and I get that because of the business we're in, but that also doesn't really set you up for success. And that's why certainly executives and everyone else is like, well, so what's in it for me? So if you can always address the so what's in it for me. I think, uh, and I, again, so uh, here's a little throwback, right? Who do you always remember saying, if you bring a problem, bring a solution, mm-hmm. right? How many times yep. have we heard that yep. growing up at Hershey? <laughs> and I love that. And I use, I use that up. all of the time. So now I'm, I'm going to add on to that a few years later. And if you bring a problem, bring a solution and bring the ROI. <laughs> yes. Oh, that's so good. But also, you know, I, I, probably I'm going to make, make like a presentation for, for my post-clinicals now cool. based on, on how to develop an ROI and how, or how to at least begin thinking of it to solve problems. I think that's such a good idea. And no, I, I don't think that you were a jerk at all. I think, <laughs> I think that was su- such a good, you know, overtone of what I was trying to attempt to say. Yeah, I, I know where you're going. You know, it, like yeah. it, because it is, it's, you're so right. It's such a thin, thin line of what people work with that you see hospitals are, are, are closing in this current pandemic, which is an issue. Exactly. And it's exposed such issues with health systems in general because it's a fractured system. Exactly. It, I, I hope that we haven't forgotten that lesson between supply chain, 
I mean, this shined the biggest spotlight. You could see right away, like, oh, that hospital system had to lay off all those people. What's going on there? That right. one didn't. Why right. did that one have take more of a hit than that one? What's right. going on? Yeah. So I, I mean, I, I, but I'm also a nerd about this thing, and I read that, and I don't know how. I don't know how much of this made it to the public. I try to point it out whenever I did, like, hey, look, so-and-so <laughs> hospital system, so-and-so, you know, that should be telling to us. We should be listening to that as the general public and kind of thinking like, hmm, what else is fractured in that system that could impact me as a patient? Right? Yes. Oh, so good. So I don't know. I'm a nerd, though. I think of all these. This is, I still, I still don't watch a ton of TV, but I did. <laughs> You do watch important, quote unquote, TV that has to do with hospital stuff, right? You should... Oh, oh, and and the Mandalorian. And the Mandalorian. <laughs> you do watch important TV and Mandalorian. She did just pet her her, her little Mandalorian there. You know, Lego. I have a Lego baby Yoda that I just built, and it's fabulous. He's also here doing the interview with us <laughs> the, the whole time. It's been great. So, um, what do you want to do next? If, if anything oh yeah so that's funny and you might not know it you know it's just I, ideas yeah i know and it's always in in some respects i feel like i haven't evolved at all because i'm still asking the question what do i want to be when i grow up <laughs> uh, but in other respects i'm like oh Same. that was it was it's so cool sometimes to look back and say hey man that was a really great experience i'm so glad i did that so um i i think that i am um, I am interested because I, I have a unique perspective. I'm, I'm coming to realize that, um, having been, uh, you know, a, a real nurse and then a desk nurse, and then a little bit of a nerd. Um, and, and then by the way, there's this whole pop health Dr. Merkel thing. Um, I, I realize I probably have kind of a unique perspective on things. Um, so I, I'm kind of interested in looking at areas that will uh, and industries that will value that and I certainly hope that um, I can contribute this value to ultimately to patient outcomes really that's really I, I need to have a clear line of sight to patients so that's kind of what drives me um, and I, that will continue to drive me that, that that's that's it burned into my compass so yeah wherever the wandering goes next or maybe not at all or maybe nowhere um it's always going to have the burned image of i need to be able to see oh, how my work is impacting patients yeah i mean that's the, that's the that's the nurse it's not going to go away <laughs> yeah and i think it's going to be so interesting to see what the new administration will, will do sure and how yeah. changes yeah. might happen and perhaps how implementation science will occur during this time yes. So I'm glad you mentioned that. I just completed attending uh, my first ever dissemination and implementation science conference hosted by Academy Health. I was very excited. I had a podium presentation and also a poster, um, which was showcasing a couple aspects of my dissertation work. And so it was super, super exciting to be able to go and present that. But it is cool to see that community grow and to also see all of the places implementation science is growing legs. Mm -hmm. um, it is becoming larger and larger, uh, a skill much more largely utilized in, in pharma. It always has been in the VA. Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. veterans uh, VHA. So I, I'm very excited to see more and more healthcare industry entities uh, hop on the scene of implementation science. It was in like IT and stuff like that before. That's great and fine, but you know, you know how that goes. Yeah. When, when I start to see healthcare places coming up to bat in adoption and attendance and Kaiser and some of these additional, uh, some of these alternative care models, folk, you know, that gets me very excited that there are more and more people seeing the value in this and the the value in thoughtful execution of evidence-based practice. And that's, and that's, I probably didn't even really get to actually tell you what implementation science is, um, but in a nutshell, you, I mean, I was going to say we probably should get to that, right? Unless you already covered it in another podcast. Sorry. I I mean, we can split this whole thing in the two. It doesn't matter. (laughs) But if you want to just briefly do it now, and then we can probably cover it in a, in a much more lengthier podcast. Oh yeah. Yeah, sure. That's fine. So just in a nutshell, um, and I I would just say in a nutshell, implementation science is taking um, a more detailed, thorough, methodical approach to executing on um, the actual evidence-based practices. So you need a ticket to admission Mm -hmm. into implementation science is having evidence-based practice, evidence-based medicine, evidence-based public health, intervention, fill in the blank, evidence-based blank. Uh, intervention already out there. So now you're trying to take something that's best practice and put it into practice. So it's cool because it does have that pragmatic feel to it and that real time, like, let's get in there, let's do it, but let's study it along the way and make sure yes. it's effective and make sure our strategies align to what we're seeing as the outcome. Yes. Uh, one of the hallmarks of this is also the fact that implementation science has distinct and unique outcomes mm-hmm. in and of itself, separate from just the patient outcomes. Yes. Uh, and, and that's very important because how many times do we see a great new shiny evidence thing, put it into place, and it doesn't work? Well, did the intervention fail or did the implementation fail? This is this is where I need <laughs> nursing to go to. Once I took an implementation science course over the summer from the World Health Organization and then briefly hit it with my patient safety and quality improvement class, it became clear as day that these are the methods that we need to adopt as inpatient practitioners that want to roll out new things and make better changes. This is, implementation science is that. It is something that perhaps not every health system does or does well and needs to, instead of just kind of like pushing something out and expecting that change will happen. Right. You know, and then studying right. it after so that's that. A big, yeah. That, that's, actually, that's actually a really big thing. Like, uh, you know, decades ago in medicine, I'll use that loosely and collectively, but you know, we thought if you publish it, they will come. Mm-hmm. You know, if you publish it, it will be consumed. And really what passive diffusion which is what you would call that. What that's shown us is actually now, and I have this stat in my dissertation, I love this statistic. Um, it would take an average like general provider, PCP, they would have to read 17, 20 articles every single day, 365 days a year to be able to keep up with all the new evidence. Wow. So, so let's really think about if passive diffusion is gonna work. Right. Um, 
only 14% of original research is translated into evidence. And that takes 20 years, I think, right? 17 years. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I, I mean, and, and, and there's, there's all, and I have little cool schematics. So yeah, I mean, if you want to do a whole other thing, I've got some really neat pictures because I love it. Sure. And because <laughs> I had to, but um, there, it, it's really mind shattering when you think about that. Like, okay, I feel like I'm drowning, keeping up with new knowledge because you are drowning because it's yeah. humanly impossible. So how are we going to make this work and still provide the latest, greatest, safest, best patient care? So implementation science is really cool because it gives you some strategies. It gives you some methods, some models and most importantly i think this is so critical is it gives you a means by which to measure the implementation itself yes because we don't know if we did a bad job spreading it in one area uh, executing it maybe we used a champion model and one of our champions was out sick during the rollout i don't know right. but i mean you know, right. was the implementation that failed or succeeded and that's just as important to ask too was this a success because of the intervention or because of the implementation. And so uh, there's a collection of outcomes that you would look at. Implementation outcomes, service outcomes based on the Institute of Medicine um, criteria, uh, categories, as well as actual like client, aka patient outcomes. Yes. And that's the, the Proctor model. But yeah, it's, it's, it's fantastic. So I, I uh, am all into implementation science. This was my first conference and it's, there's a lot of grant money that uh, is being, be, becoming more and more available. This is, if, if there's anyone into oncology, NCI is really bought into this and definitely has lots of uh, funding opportunities for implementation research. So why, why is that? Is that due in part for perhaps chemotherapies or is it due in part because of other other methods and metrics because I read I read a large meta-analysis on chemotherapies that basically stated that it only provides all the things combined basically only provides two additional months of life I'll have, to, I'll have to send it to you you have to send it to me because I would find I would find too many confounders in that to buy that straight away so I'd have to because depending on the type of cancer, the stage, when you're giving it, the type of chemo, the receptor cell. Like, I mean, I can think of like 10 confounders. Yeah. Like, how the heck did they yeah. boil that down? Too much? I think, I think that'd be great to discuss on, like, perhaps like get a group of us together and discuss it and kind of like, not tear it apart, but tear it apart. Yeah. You know? Like journal club. Woo. Ooh, yes. Journal club. I just <laughs> love that. That would be so fun. That's another really cool thing. Um, being kind of on the ambulatory side of the fence, it's been very, very fun. So, uh, of course, as an inpatient nurse, you're working with different disciplines. Of course, you're getting to learn. You, you know, I, I'm not diminishing that at all, but seeing how they work together or, or don't, which is why I was like, what? Why are there no teams in primary care? Um, but, you know, getting to learn the different uh, disciplines and what they have to offer in a different setting is super cool. I've been working very closely with our clinical ambulatory pharmacists. They are my buds. They're so much fun. Um, they're not like normal pharmacists. They're a lot of fun. They're more like nurses. I tell them all the time, like, you guys are the best nurses. Like, I hear them talking to their patients and and they like, what? <laughs> I'm like, you guys just are the best nurses. Um, but 
they have a journal club with their students a lot. So they like to have me come and like take a picture. So fun. Yeah. I, I honestly thought about that doing like a quarterly podcast journal club where you would discuss something and just like kind of like tear into it and, and, you know, yeah, really find stuff the methods. About and yeah, is that really the right method? And what are they, what could they be? I think that's important too. And uh, we've, and one of the sessions actually at the DNI conference, one of the plenaries I really enjoyed was why was there so much misinformation? Why was it so hard to find kind of true North during COVID? Yes, we didn't know a whole lot. But we also had an advent, an avalanche of preprints. Yes. And preprints are great, but they need extra scrutiny. Yes. And, and there needs to be additional vetting done because they did not have that before. You know, anyone can just print anything. So that's where we see articles that, you know, all of a sudden hydrochloroquine is, hydroxychloroquine is a miracle drug. You know, that's where we see sometimes things yep. escalate to levels. So it was a really great uh, plenary about misinformation and, and how we need to deal with that now in science as well. That we that need to do science at the speed of life as yeah. well as. <laughs> yeah, cool. that sounds great because of because of how much, you know, and, and it's not just perhaps the preprints problem, but we got here because social media mismanaged so much as well. Oh yeah, that, and that's a whole yeah. right. And I'm just, uh, I, oh yeah, that's, that's a whole, a whole rabbit hole. Can of worms. Yeah. I was actually just talking about just the science aspect, even within science, like how much right. very, you know, we couldn't agree with each other. And and as he said, you know, if you look hard enough, everyone has a friend from Stanford that's willing to sell their credentials on bad evidence. I'm like, whoa, okay. <laughs> A professor, but I, I didn't get the reference he was speaking to. And he was really sort of tongue in cheek about it. He wasn't like bashing anyone. He just was sort of trying to say like, you know, you really need to be able to make these determinations for yourself and, 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 and just ask the questions and yes. ask why, and is that right? Is there another better way they could have done that? What's, what methodology did they use, you know? So, yeah. And it's totally okay to do that for so many things. Yeah. It's pretty exciting. So I, I'm, yeah, I'm glad I, I'm glad I got to go to that conference. It was great. I just wish I could have been there in person, but yeah, such is life. Right? Maybe next year. You never know. Well, we'll see. Better get crack a lack and on the next yeah, one, next study. Come up with some abstract that says, "Hey, this is what I'm doing." Yeah, exactly. We'll work on some. Always some. Yeah. Anything else you want to mention? Oh, oh, um, I, <laughs> I, uh. Did a stint of adjuncting. That's been Ooh. fun. So was, I also uh, did a semester of adjunct professor at uh, College of Pop Health in Health and Quality and Safety. So I got to do like the kind of 101 level for the MPH students. So it was pretty cool. That's cool. Yeah, it was a neat experience. Like I said, I'm I'm just a wanderer. You are a wanderer, but you know what? I you know if I didn't wander myself into adjunct for baccalaureate students, I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you on a podcast. So <laughs> that's what I mean. It's, it's cool. You just, let me see what that path looks like. Okay. Right. Like, all right, let me just do a podcast this month. Like, okay, let's, that sounds exciting. Let's try it. You know, why not? But yeah, adjuncting for me has been a more creative outlet than I would have once thought, because I thought adjuncting was going to be this super, perhaps boring process where I'm going to only have to teach about one thing and the students are only going to want to listen to one thing. 
And the second year that I did it, I realized that I had a lot of creative freedom to teach different different methods and different things of the student to what they want to know, right? Meeting, just like you said in the beginning of this, of this episode, meeting the patient at the bedside to their needs. Oh, yeah. Exactly oh, the same yeah. thing with students, you know? Interpreting is so much fun though. Are you going to do it again? Or are you still going to do it? Or are you going to? Yeah, I applied for another semester. So I don't fully understand the how they pick and the why and the, I don't know, but I applied again for another semester. So we'll see. I mean, they pick, like, apparently you have to apply every, I, I don't know if it's every term or every year. I did it in the summer. Okay. okay. Yeah. So I don't know. I don't know if they pick me. Great. I'd love to do it again. It was a great experience. I got good evals. So hopefully. <laughs> yeah. And that's, that's sometimes like the key in there is like, oh, you got good evals. There, there you go. The other key is like, I'm the only neuroscience nurse that loves neuroscience and teaches it. So yeah. for me, it's like a win-win, I think. Yeah. Um, you know, they can always find someone else and that's fine too. Um, adjuncting is just something that I think is, is a, a gratitude that I've learned that I think I'm, you know, I really like, I don't know if I want to teach full time, but I do like mm-hmm. adjuncting and just kind of like being like, this right. is cool, you know, for now. And, and that's what I say all the time. Like, I don't think Right now, I feel like I still have an axe to grind. I still want to kind of, I don't know, wander and explore. But I think there'll be a point in time where I'm like, okay, I'm cool. I'll want to like professor or go into academia. I'm just, I'm just not there yet. I'm yeah. still sort of climbing the hill, I think. I could see you writing a book though. <laughs> writing a book? Yeah, writing a book oh, on something. That would be fun. I guess we'd find something cool to write about. And maybe it's not even nursing. Maybe it's like, um, a, you know, a narrative piece on The Mandalorian. Right, right. I don't. I don't think I'm as in deep with the cool Star Trek references as other folks. I have a question for you. Now I'm going to interview you. Okay. What are you going to go back to triathloning? Uh, If it's safe to do it, I would love to. Because so a lot of my students, I tell them that I'm a triathlete like right away, and they they kind of look at me like I'm nuts that I do triathlon. Right. And I'm kind of like, but it's not nuts. It's actually a stepping process, and it actually made me a lot better at what I do and being able to handle multiple things at once. Yeah. And I, and I tell them this all the time and because it's such a teaching tool, right? And triathlon has taught me number one, to control my ADHD in a different way than I previously known. Yeah. Number two, it teaches you that you have to do three separate sports. You have to teach yourself how to eat and stay hydrated and stay on top of your nutrition during these things. You also have to transition these sports and you also have to do it with minimal waste and minimal equipment. Mm-hmm. So, because you want to be fast, you don't want to be carrying around 900 pounds on a bike. Right. No. <laughs> and so for me, you know, as it, it's been one of the biggest challenges of my life is learning how to do triathlon and mm-hmm. learning how to do it well and learning how to train so that you don't, overtrain yourself yeah. and learning how to, how to teach myself how to swim again. You know, that was really cool. I haven't, when, when I, t- when I tell people that I signed up for triathlon, the first triathlon I signed up for was the Ironman Atlantic city, 70.3. What? Yeah. Like I didn't, I didn't step into the, into shallow waters. I was like, yeah, we're going to do this and we're going to figure it out. <laughs> that is, that is what I'm really good at is, is not surprising. Into something and figuring it out. That's hilarious. I love you. Yeah. And then I had to do something before doing that. So I did the Philadelphia triathlon. So it's not the same one that, that you did, oh. um, but I, but I think that the license is probably the same 
Delmo Sports. Yes. Yeah. So before Delmo, it was the Philadelphia Triathlon. Mm-hmm. I forget who sponsored it. We swam in the Schuylkill River. Woo! Right? And I didn't die, right? Hello. You didn't die. I didn't die. And then we ran, we rode our bikes around that area and then we ran our run was on was on the road right there kelly drive kelly drive yep they they blocked off the road for both the biking and the running so it was nice and then several months after that was the first 70.3 that that i ever did wow what a transformative process i didn't know i would love traveling that much but what i i loved it and my, my favorite race to date was actually the 70.3 I did in Maine. That was the toughest 70.3 I've ever done, toughest triathlon I've ever done, where the water had six feet swells. Ooh, I, I swam against a rip current. Holy cow. Right? My time was two, was like two minutes slower or a minute slower per 100 than I normally swim. The water was cold, like 60 degrees. The bike was windy and cold oh. and like it was not a nice day to, to start out right no it's the run though and the run was part road and then part shaded run on a trail so it was the most beautiful run and all i wanted to do was concentrate on heart rate goal in a specific range because i was i am very much into heart rate training and i pr'd somehow pr'd in this race I somehow got a flat tire. Didn't, didn't even realize I had a flat tire. <laughs> you just but, kept going. And then just kept, but I, mean, I kept going because I was like, well, I got to finish. All right. All right. I'm not going to sit here and cry. And I think Carathon really taught me that things are going to suck. Yes. And you need to learn how to deal to deal with that and yeah. to move over that and to persevere and yeah. to realize that you can still have a great race Yeah. by having all these setbacks. That's so, really cool. That is really amazing. So for me, like, I really, really love triathlon. I'm okay without it for right now. I think that the world is safer. But, and honestly, starting my DNP school, I'm okay with not training for 70.3s right now. <laughs> you know, it's a oh lot God. of time. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I'm not like, uh, I'm not like that kind of story. I, I, like, I literally just got the taste and was like, hey, I'm so much more focused. I'm so much more organized. Like um, the whole thing. I, I actually loved all like the getting ready. Like I had, I had like a set thing, you know, I did this and then this, and I, and I actually kind of look forward to it each week. Yeah. I don't, yeah. It was a whole thing. And I'm, I was signed up for this past year, just like I'm sure you were. And now they're, I don't know, whenever. <laughs> I signed up for a couple races and they turned into virtual races. Yeah. And that was cool for a little bit right? You're just like another virtual race where I have to run by myself. I did a virtual half marathon and I don't think people understand how hard virtual racing is. Racing with people is the best. Marathon with the crowds, with people that are offering you, you know, beer in the middle of your run or shots of whiskey. It sounds ridiculous, but it's just a lot. No, it's wonderful. I agree. Yeah. The turkey trot, like I still like, okay, I'll get two friends. We're going to run outside. And, and it was, a, it was a completely different race than me doing it myself. It's just so enjoyable. And so like I did this virtual half, half marathon yeah. around my neighborhood. And I was like, that is the longest thing I've ever done in my life. It felt so long, so oh. much longer than the eight, seven and a half hours oh. for me to do a 70.3. That's terrible. Yeah. I, I know. I know. I'm very concerned about getting back up 
to ski. Like I really didn't like swimming. <laughs> I'm like, and I'm like, triathlon is not your thing. Maybe duathlon is. I honestly, I'm like, you know, maybe I can just do the duo. Like I really, yeah. I, I mean, I was happy that I finished it, but I never liked it. <laughs> and that's okay. You know, you don't have to like it. Like my thing, my, my, I did really well in actually was aqua bike, which is just swim, bike, and you're done. Yeah. I finished 22nd in the nation. That's and, killer. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. And I was like, oh, I'm actually pretty good at this. But then I was like, I'm not going to do it again. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't want to do something I'm good at. Well, all I, the mean, time. I mean, all I mean, I would time. love to have made Team USA for that. For well, that. yeah, sure. But I'm really not all the time. Right. Yeah. But, but I'm not going to be like, oh, I'm totally, I'm totally a Team USA athlete. You know what I mean? Like, I'm going to train for that. That's not what I want. It's exhausting. You know? Yeah. No, too much, too much, too high maintenance. I agree. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm thinking about that. Honestly, I'm thinking like, maybe I'll just do, yeah, I don't know. We'll see. We'll see when it opens. Will I have somewhere to swim, to practice? We were signed up for our first sort of real one. Like we're going to do Marshman. So it was, I think it was still a sprint, but it was like a real sprint, not like a pool and like a confined course. Like we were on the hills and, um, so, you know, but, you know, it took a long time to get to that level. So, and mine, I was nowhere near 70.3. I'm not even trying to pretend that, but that's a lot for me. So I don't know. Everybody's, everybody starts somewhere. And that's what I tell my students yep. that if you want to do something, you don't start, you don't, you're not, you, you shouldn't be like me, but also. You probably shouldn't also, sign up for the 70.3 first. <laughs> but I mean, like, I have, I have a history of throwing myself into things and figuring it out. And I, and to be honest, when I started running again for the first time since, since the sale, I started one mile at a time and I hated every single mile. <laughs> I mean, running from, I, I started signing up for the Broad Street Run, which mm-hmm. if nobody knows is a 10 mile quote unquote downhill run. <laughs> it's, not really, it's not really downhill and downhill. It's, it's definitely 10 miles, Yeah. but you know, you start out one day just doing a mile and then you do yep. two miles and then three miles. And that's, that's the process that I love the most. Yeah. Breaking it down. I, simplifying. Mm-hmm. I agree. Well, I, I really agree. And going through a dissertation that time and feeling like this was a never ending journey and the, my God, I'm still doing this. And this is, you know, there's no light, but then when you can look back and see the progress and that's how I was with exactly the triathlon, like I needed to do that. I think during the process to ensure I was actually going to finish the process because yeah. I don't think, I, I don't think I would never in my life have thought I would have done even the one I did. And in I fact think, that I did it, I'm like, yeah. well, I don't have limits. I'm, I'm putting limitations on myself. What the hell I, am I doing that for? Oh, that's such, right. a good, that's such a good topic. Putting limitations on yourself. You really and do. I think it's important that you see small achievements yeah. in between areas of struggle. Yeah. I think that's what triathlon does as well for people. Yep. Me too. Yes. Exactly. Is being like, able to see that in yourself. Exactly. Exactly. I literally did not know how to swim. I mean, I could like doggy paddle, but I did not know how to like swim. So it's the hard. fact I started in January of that year and like, I just kept going and watching YouTube videos and cursing and going and cursing and going and cur- but then I did it. I swam the whole 300, whatever. And I was like, okay, well, Shit. And you did, I will say that that triathlon, that particular one that you did is probably one of my favorite triathlons. It, I can see. It's how, such a tiny one, it but it's fun. like, it's such a great a, energy and great, great energy. 
it was so positive. They make sure you have a positive experience. So I'm sure that played a huge role. They but do. now I have that perspective. Like this is so it's it's no different than we talked about earlier, right? If you are working at your magnet hospital, right? So you are getting this really positive experience of what healthcare can be and should be and is, yep. right? And then you're taking that into the world. And what what are you doing with that positive energy now? Yeah. Well, are you reinvesting it in yourself to say, okay, great. Well, now I want to be part of that and I want to bring that to a new population or a new discipline or new area of nursing or whatever. I think it's pretty similar. So I, for me, I think it was really therapeutic and I really needed to see that I could accomplish something I never thought I could while I was accomplishing something I never thought I could. Right. <laughs> so, so good. Weird oxymoron, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. I've, I've really been addicted to Zwift. So I don't know if you have a bike, um, and the then you have like set up. Yeah. Like, uh, well, so what people on Zwift use is their bike on a trainer with, with pods that connect to your Bluetooth and do your speed and your um, watts and things like that. Yeah. No. And in the virtual racing world, mm-hmm. and it's so addicting <laughs> that it's kind of like, I, I don't want to compare it to Peloton because it's not Peloton at all, um, but it is a world that you can kind of create an, an avatar for. And race with it in this that's virtual cool. environment so it's pretty cool so that's what i've been doing this entire pandemic since march is that's cool. the gym and i decided that zwift was what i was going to do that's so cool yeah no i uh, i have not i did get a, a bike and i have it's like a schwinn and but it's a peloton app so i just do that and uh, biking so this is stupid right so i couldn't swim i also I'm not a good biker. Like I, I am too distracted. Like I, I want to just lollygag and like, oh, look at the squirrel, look at the deer. And like I don't like, you know, focus and bike. So I was hoping getting a bike and doing these classes was going to help. And I think I can see progress. So I'm hoping it'll make me a better biker at the end of it. But it's certainly I'm tolerating more and more. So I'm glad about that. I think it's okay though that you do let your mind go away. <laughs> biking so I once I quit running I rode my bike everywhere I purchased I saw the Tour de France and I was like this is the coolest thing (laughs) and there were gonna be a Tour de France rider obviously right but like I just love the fact that you could just ride for hours and miles and didn't need to worry about things and I put music in my ears it's probably not something that you should should probably do now because of the dangers whatever but (laughs) on the open road probably yeah (laughs) but I allowed my mind like like one of the biggest things was I would allow my mind to just do whatever it wanted to do while I was running my bike Uh and so if I had a really horrible problem to solve I knew that I could probably solve it by just going for a bike ride right you know like a 20 mile ride so that's where I let kind of my mind wander and stuff like that I don't I I tend to focus a lot on data while I'm racing which is a parallel, I think, to this conversation, because when you look at your watt metrics and you look at your speed and you look at all these things and your heart rate stuff, you can really lose yourself in it or you can really say, okay, I'm just going to calm it down now. I'm not going to stress about this and and here's what I'm going to do to fix it. So, yeah. 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 Yeah, That's, that's pretty neat. I can see that. I feel like I lose my mind when I run. Like I I just go somewhere else. I'm just like, and and that's sort of my escape like race biking like I can autopilot my cadence and speed and running 
I, I can't now. I'm really rusty. Don't even ask me about that. But when I'm like actually, when I'm actually like doing, you know, running like a like I used to run, I can sort of set it and forget it, and then my mind wanders. Yeah. So I have I haven't gotten there yet on a bike. I'm hoping to because I'd like to. But for me, it's I have to look at the speed. I have to keep. No, no, Lori, pay attention. You're not going fast enough. I, you know, you're, yeah, yes. So hard. That's, that's where I get with running, which is why I'm, I don't necessarily like running a lot because I always focus on, well, am I going fast enough? <laughs> Could I go uh, faster? And it doesn't like, it just doesn't click. Like biking, it just clicks, you know? Yeah. Oh, I was like, they were running. That's hilarious. That's awesome. So that's the other, that's the other reason I'm like, uh, maybe I'll just focus on biking and running. It's pretty. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. We'll see. Yeah. Any other questions? Oh dear. No, I've kept you way too long. Oh, In fact, I have to go do my bike boot camp tonight. I have that planned. Ooh, so. yes. Well, Lori, thank you so much for joining me on the <laughs> podcast. I hope this was enjoyable. I loved it. I know. I don't know if anybody's still listening. <laughs> well, it's not live. It's it, it. This is recorded and then we'll release it at a later time. Well, when you go to release it, they'll be like, oh, I checked out like a half hour ago. You guys are crazy. I, f- I forget. I think my longest episode is like a two and a half hour episode. So I think you're fine. Woo! Yeah. So, all right. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank I, you so much for we'll having have to, me. Absolutely. We'll have to do an implementation science one for sure. Yay! Get all the nerds on and, t- and talk about things. 